Well, good morning. You got to love stew weather, right? Stew weather. This is wonderful. We're talking about Esau today, so stew weather couldn't be better. I'm very excited about that. A couple of announcements for you. Well, one in particular, Fall Fest is just two weeks away already. Fall Fest is coming up, and we need your help uh, to, to help make that happen. And so uh, we need help with setup, which will take place on Saturday. That's 13 days away from now. Uh, Saturday at 1 o'clock, it'll be after the homecoming parade is over and before the football game uh, we're to clean up the Hearst Barn where we'll be at. Uh, so there'll be a clipboard being passed around also if you'd like to, or if you'd like to help with execution the day of, of, of executing different uh, events or needs, everything from cooking to, uh, to bringing various food items, uh, please do that. And then also we need some more help with, with cleanup that'll take place on the following Monday uh, to make sure we get, get everything put back the way it ought to be. So that'll be being passed around, so don't worry. No one's looking at you when it comes around. Uh, I'm not judging you when it's passed around. It was my idea to pass it around at this time. So don't worry uh, as that gets passed around to you. Well, I want to give you some background information this morning before we dive into our text of Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 through 14. Last week, if you recall, we looked at, at, at the damage of, of a hardened heart. We saw Israel's response as the favored people of God dealing with a hardened heart. Where immediately they reject this burdensome word. They have this antagonistic spirit against the Lord, rejecting even his favor that he's shown upon them. It skews their view of history. It skews their view of everything. This morning, we're going to be looking at the priests, the religious leaders of Israel. The Lord has shifted his focus to the religious leaders of Israel, the priests. And in so doing, he exposes the reality that their hardened hearts come from a rejection of the Lord's authority. So they're hardened hearts, they reject the Lord's authority, and there's numerous different evidences that will come forth in their life. And before we do that, I want to give a little bit of background on the priest, the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, in case you're not too familiar. So I'm going to give you a little survey on the priests and their role that they had. The Levitical priests began, were began by God and uh, with Aaron, Moses' older brother. And they were ultimately to come from the tribe of Levi. That's why they would be called Levitical priests. And in this, they were to be the, the oldest. It was to be the oldest of the son. We have the, the tribes of Israel and the Levites, unlike the other tribes, did not have land. Their possession was to be the Lord. So they didn't have land. The firstborn son who would have the birthright to be the leader of the home, he was set apart to be a priest. And they observed the tabernacle first, which was the mobile temple, until eventually the temple would be built when they would come into the land where they ought to be. The priests had a particular responsibility. We might say two responsibilities. They functioned like a corporate mediator between sinful people and a holy God. And therefore, the requirements and the standards that God had for the priests were uncompromising. They couldn't be compromised because God and His holiness and His nature can't be compromised, can't be negotiated down. No exception to the standards that God has. And so early on in the story, we see that the priests, even though they have two responsibilities, they also, in the book of Deuteronomy in 17 and in chapter 30, we see they had the responsibility not just to make sacrifices, but they also had a responsibility as judges. They would handle cases that would take place among Israel. They also had a responsibility to teach Israel, to teach them the law, to keep this at the forefront of their mind. And so in this way, we might say that the priests had the responsibility of keeping Israel looking upward to the Lord and looking forward to the one that would come eventually, the Messiah that would come and do what they were doing and, and yet offer the perfect sacrifice that would be to come. 
And early on in the story, when we get to Leviticus, we see that God takes their responsibility very seriously. He's not playing around with sin. We come to two individuals. Uh, the grandsons, ultimately, we see Esau, who's going to, is Abraham's grandson, and, and, and Esau sells his birthright for some stew well early in the line. And in our text this morning, God's going to compare the Israelites to Esau, a punting of the birthright, a selling of the birthright, living as Esau, not as Jacob, who they're truly called to be. But God takes sin incredibly seriously, and he cannot compromise the mediator that he has in place. So early on in the story, we have two characters named Abihu and Nadab, Abihu and Nadab, and they, as priests, touch the Ark of the Covenant. They, they, they compromise their responsibilities. And in compromising their responsibilities, God strikes them dead early on, very, from the very beginning. And we look forward a little further in the story. We go into Samuel, and we see that, that Eli has these sons. And these sons, Scripture calls them worthless. They're worthless sons. They're doing terrible, terrible things. And God likewise kills them. He kills the priests because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Rather, immediate judgment. And you read that, and if you're like me, you're thinking, this sounds pretty extreme. You're just going to kill these guys like that? They, had, they made mistakes, or they didn't do their job very well? Like, that would be terrible if that was our consequence for our jobs, that you were killed very quickly if you didn't. I, I, I think our standards for excellence would in, improve in our job standards. If the consequence wasn't being fired, it was being killed, right? Not a good thing. And yet you read the story, and as you continue to read through Israel's history, you get to the book of Malachi, and we see what happens when God is slow to bring judgment upon the religious leaders. The priests of Israel, since God has not brought judgment upon them and taken their lives, he's allowed their hearts to grow hardened. And because their hearts have grown hardened, judgment has come upon all the people of Israel. Judgment has come upon them and judgment has come upon the land. And judgment in the form of allowing the hard-hearted priests to maintain their office. As we come into this text, not only today, but next week, we'll see that the judgment is not that Israel and the priests are fired, but that they remain there, and they're to be despised and mocked by the people. So when we read our text this morning, we get a taste of God's judgment and the havoc that comes with hard-hearted leaders. And we pray, likewise, as we look at this text, Lord, would you, in our hearts, as leaders, not just as elders and, and staff, small group leaders, not, not just position leaders in our body, but every one of us is called to be leaders in the sphere of influence that God has given us. Leaders in our homes, leaders with our children, leaders in our community, leaders in our, in our places of employment, leaders in our neighborhood. Every relationship has a leadership dynamic. And so in every area, God calls us to be good and faithful leaders. And one of the blessings that God can give us as a church family as we get ready to dive into this text is that he would show us, Lord, would you show me where my heart might begin to get crusty? Show me where my heart begins to get hard, for that will reveal a rejection of your authority that's in my life. Every one of us. So, so the application for us, if we look at the priests and the way that their heart hardens against the Lord, we're going to notice four evidences of a hardening heart for a leader. This will be for myself that you might see in my life as time goes by. Four different aspects, and here's going to be the challenge that I have for us. It's going to be the first next steps question, but it's what I think will help us most as we walk through these four evidences. Here's what I'd ask you to do. You would consider your life 
And each, each and every one of these four evidences can show up in any of our lives. Male or female, doesn't matter, young or old. But I, but I think probably for each of us, there's one or two of these that's most likely to show up first if our hearts are becoming hardened against the Lord. And so what I'd ask you to do as we walk through these is, is for yourself to say, you know what, I think evidence, maybe evidence two for me is probably the area where I'm most likely to show a hardening, an evidence of a hardening in my heart against the Lord. Or for some of us, maybe it's evidence four or evidence one or evidence three. So whatever that is, the first next steps component we're having this morning is that you would kind of rank those in the area you're most likely to first show a hardening. Because part of God's blessing that he gives us as a church family is to help expose that with each other. To lovingly care enough to show and say, hey, I I think this might be an evidence of a rejection of the Lord's authority in your life. So let's begin this morning as we look at verses 6 through 11, exposing the central idea that hard-hearted leaders serve dishonorably because they reject the Lord's authority. Hard-hearted leaders serve dishonorably because they reject the Lord's authority. And here's these four evidences. Let's notice evidence one in verses six through eight. Evidence one of rejecting the Lord's authority, compromised values, compromised values, simply choosing stew over birthright. Choosing stew over birthright, verse 6 through 8. Let me read that for us from the ESV. The Lord says through Malachi, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say... How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And what you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil when you do that? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or or show you favor, says the Lord? So, So just as Jacob and Esau, and you can write down the reference. We won't read it, but Genesis 25, if you're taking notes, Genesis 25. Remember Esau, this is part of what, I think I forget the story. Esau's granddad is Abraham. And God gave the covenant promise to Abraham. So through his line, through Abraham's line, was going to come the Messiah. The one that would bless all the families of the nations, among other promises. That was Esau's granddad. And Esau sells his birthright for some stew. And God says here at the very, so so imagine that. It's not just this promise, yes, it's going to come through our line, but it's his granddad. And he still punts it. He punts away his responsibilities. He punts away his right as the firstborn for some stew. He exchanges that which is of true value for that which is immediate and short and quick and fast and temporarily satisfying. And God tells the priests, you are like Esau. You devalue the things that are truly valuable. You've compromised your values. And this is a contrast to verses 2 through 5. So even though he said, I have loved Jacob and hated Esau, he points out to the priests in this contrast, you're acting like Esau. You're acting in the line of Esau. You're acting like the Edomites. You're not valuing the things of me. You don't value what I value. You value the things of Esau. You don't reflect me. You're supposed to reflect me. 
but you don't reflect me. You reflect the things of Esau. You've compromised your values. You flip them upside down. And he, and he gives them them two common sense examples. Did you see those? First, he gave a son honoring his father. So the idea of honor being the honor that's, that's due the father, the father in authority over the son. So the son's to honor the father. And he gives a second example. And likewise, the, uh, the, the servant is to honor the boss, the master, because of position of authority. You ought to honor them. What God tells the priest is, you're acting like I am your child. You're acting like I'm your son. You're acting like I'm your servant, priests. You've compromised the values. You've flipped it completely upside down. You've skewed everything. 400 years later, Jesus will come. God the Son will take on flesh and dwell among them, and he'll, he'll approach the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the descendants of these priests. He will call them, woe to you, you, you whitewashed tombs. You're filled with dead bones. That's what the Lord tells them here. You're acting like Esau. The religious leaders were to be imitators of God as beloved children walking in a valuing of the word of the Lord. And yet the priests had flipped it entirely upside down. They compromised the values of the Lord. They no longer value the things of the Lord. So instead, the temptation for anyone in power in our lives, here's application, the temptation for us is to sacrifice and to compromise the values that are of the Lord for some stew, something warm that feels good right now, a longing, an appetite to where we completely skew the values that God has given us. The priests had no right to change anything. They had no right to change anything, and yet they did. Next week, we'll see that they showed favoritism. So even though there seems to be a fear that they have of Perhaps Persia, still the superpower, the coming Greeks who will come along and take out the Persians, or the Romans later on that will take out the Greeks when we open back up our New Testament, or perhaps the neighboring nations or the Edomites to the south. It seems like the priests are also having a problem. Well, we know it's true. They're having a problem with partiality. So it seems like they're showing favoritism. It's not just that they're offering bad sacrifices. It's that they're saying, you have power in Israel you have wealth or power, so, so you can sacrifice whatever you want. So it seems like they're showing partiality even in the body of Israel. It's, it's the good old boy network, but in Israel, this is not good. It's not, it's not the good old boy. This is not the good old boy. It is a network for Israel, but it's in Israel. And the priests are compromising because of that power. They're completely compromising the values that God has given them that they have no right to compromise in. The temptation for us is to do the same. It's to take what the Lord has clearly stated for us and to edit it. To edit it, to compromise the values He's given in our lives. Now I want you to notice what the text says. We see, how does the Lord review Himself? How does the Lord identify Himself in this book? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. So, so that is 24 times, write that down, 24 times the Lord identifies Himself in the book of Malachi as the Lord of hosts. Why am I making a big point to that? Because it's 24 times in a book we can read in 10 minutes. 24 times God calls himself the Lord of hosts. Now, when I, was, I would think the Lord of hosts, you know what I thought this was? Earlier on when I read that, I think he was like the Lord of parties, like a host of a party. Like he's the greatest party thrower of all time. He's the greatest host. You can put your shoes up on his couch. The Lord of hosts. That's not what this is. 
This is the Lord of heaven's armies, the host of armies. So literally, He's the Lord of heaven's armies. 24 times in this little book, 24 times, the Lord will refer to Himself as the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord of heaven's armies. And He reminds the priests from the very beginning, you seem to be worried about the values of the world or taking things into your own hands, but in doing so, you violate my values and I'm the Lord of heaven's armies. I'm the Lord of hosts. The hosts of the heavens, the, the, the heaven's armies. And what does Jesus say, do you recall? What could he do when he was on the cross? He could have called down a legion, an army of angels. And that's what the Lord says to the priests. You compromise the things of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have no right to do that. But they do so because their hearts are rejecting the Lord's authority. And it shows itself inevitably by a compromising of the values of the Lord. So in our lives, again, practically speaking, what are the areas where you might most be likely for this to show? It's the areas where we're tempted to take stew for our birthright. To compromise the values of God because of outside pressure for temporary relief might show itself in temptation or a number of other areas, but that's number one. Evidence one, compromised values, choosing stew over birthright. And secondly, as we go to 9 and 10, evidence two of a calloused conscience. A calloused conscience. Too ignorant to ask for grace. Compromised values or calloused conscience. So the idea is we become so calloused we don't even know that we're calloused. We're, we're too ignorant to ask for grace because we refuse to see that we're in error. I did nothing wrong. Callous conscience. Look at verse 9 and 10, what the Lord says to the priests. He says, And now entreat the favor of God, that He may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. So, so God's gracious gift. So, so you should go to God and ask for His favor and His grace to you with such a gift from your hand. So of the priest's hands that they're offering, these dirty sacrifices, will he show favor to any of you? You think this is working for you? Is this your job? Is this what God called you to do for Israel? Says the Lord of hosts, verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you, just one priest among you, who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. So with urgency, Malachi tells the priest, entreat the favor of the Lord, but they're too ignorant to know that they need to seek the favor of the Lord. Immediate application right now in our context in East Texas that I found, as in, it was the same in the Midwest, it was very similar, is part of sharing the gospel with people to see their need for Jesus Christ, repentance and faith in Christ, one of the hardest parts is that people already think they're saved. There's a huge percentage of our population that, presumes that they're Christian because they're Texan, you know, <laughs> like that they're, or that they're trying to be good people, or they grew up going to church some, or so-and-so family member was a pastor, or whatever it was. There is a presumption that you are good, therefore you're right with the Lord. Therefore, why do I need what you're offering me? I, I know of Jesus. I've got a cross in my yard. And so there's an assumption that I must, I, I'm already good. 
I'm fine. I'm living a good life. I like my life. And that's what the priests of Israel are doing. They're offering offensive, disgusting sacrifices before God. And God says, listen, you don't even realize, well, just one of you shut this up so it's not possible to make any more sacrifices because your sacrifices are so gross to me. He's saying, oh, that you would entreat the Lord's favor because you're, you're so calloused in your conscience, you don't even know what you're doing is wildly offensive to me. That's one of the evidences that we see of a hardening heart against the Lord, a calloused conscience that pops in to one's life. Again, we think forward to Jesus 400 years later when the eternal Son takes on flesh. At the very least, Pontius Pilate at the trial, what does he do when he gives opportunity? Instead, they demand Barabbas. What does he do with the water? He washes his hands. Hey, it's not on me. This is on you. At the very least, Pontius Pilate had the understanding that what was going on was perverse. The priests of Israel, those that God has given as a gift to Israel to keep them as religious leaders and as the body looking up to the Lord, honoring Him, they're so blind and their, their conscience so callous that they don't even see what they're doing has any wrongdoing in it. What a danger in our lives. James 1, 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own evil desire. Then desire, when it, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully conceived, it, it brings forth death. Sin, it hardens us. It's what sin does. It's its nature. It's calcifying. It calluses us. It's what sin does. Every one of our lives, there's no human being that's an exception to this. There's no gender that's an exception to this. Sin, it calcifies us universally. It hardens us. Ravi Zacharias says it like this. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It will keep you there longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you'll ever want to pay. That's what sin does in our lives. Callous, calcifies it. It calluses up our conscience to where we think, you know what, I'm, I've got my life under control. I really don't even need the gracious favor of God. I think it's okay. I'm doing okay. I've got this. The gospel is the opposite of that statement, right? The gospel is, no, I, I need forgiveness. I need Jesus with all of my life. I need him graciously. I can't even love my wife the way I need to love her apart from the grace of God. For a single day, for a single hour, I need dependence upon the goodness of Jesus Christ. I need the power of the Spirit in my life to faithfully abide in Him. I can't do this in my strength at all for even 10 minutes. Our dependence upon the Lord and our need for the Lord's favor is entirely a massive dependence upon Him. And sin will harden that thought. Sin will put your life in your own hands. Evidence two, calloused conscience, too ignorant to ask for forgiveness. One of the great blessings of the Lord that He gives us is a church family that loves us enough to help show us that. And the back of your bulletin, you'll see a picture of a couple new members. 
It's one of the applications that we believe new membership has in our body. It's formally saying, it's, form, it's that person formally saying, I want you to hold me accountable in my walk with the Lord. And it's them saying, I, I'm committing myself formally to help you walk in the Lord, walk by faith, to aim to live pure lives for the Lord's glory. And it's a gift. That is a gift of God. To have people in your life, not only that you know you can call and say, hey, I need help with this, but also that, you know, love you enough to want to say, I invite you into my life that when I am like the priests here, becoming blindsided and ignorant of my own sin, I'm inviting you to come into my life and to show me this. Show it like a mirror in my life what I cannot see. That's a gift that God gives us, and that's the local church. That's the congregation of Christ that he gives us. And what a sweet gift to help expose evidence number two of a callous conscience, too ignorant to ask for grace. Evidence three. Evidence three. So we've seen evidence one, compromised values. Evidence two, calloused conscience. And you'll notice all four of these are kind of woven together. So if you pull one thread long enough, you'll hit another thread. I don't think that's how weaving works, but go with me on Evidence three, confused purpose. Confused purpose, that is living for anything but the glory of God. Which of those three right now, as you look at the very beginning, as you're trying to prioritize these out, which of those three to you, if you begin to reject the Lord's authority in your life, is probably going to rise to the top first that somebody might be able to spot and see? Number three, evidence three, confused purpose living for anything but the glory of God. Verse 11 reads like this from the ESV. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, says the Lord, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Confused purpose. Israel's purpose was to proclaim the greatness of Yahweh to one another and therein to the nations before them. So Israel, led by the priests, were to be so focused upon honoring Yahweh in everything that they did. So all the detailed laws that you read about in Leviticus, what, what, what reads is a very, ooh, this is a, almost too detailed. Type A personalities usually eat up the book of Leviticus. It's their love language. Like, I love all these rules and details. This is good. But in obeying them, they were to be a distinct people from all the nations of the earth. The Lord's treasured possession. That as they were fruitful and multiplied and abiding in Yahweh, they would therein be a light to the nations. Testifying of the Lord's greatness. That the nations would look at Israel and say, Great is Yahweh. Great is your Lord. Your Lord is the true Lord. And yet they compromised their purpose beginning with their leaders. The leaders of Israel, the religious leaders, the priests, had compromised. And their compromise would wreak havoc in all the nation, as we'll see next week in our sermon, as we look at the next text into chapter 2 next week. But the Lord will not be compromised. The Lord of hosts, or you see it again, didn't you? The Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies, He will receive praise. God will never be robbed of worship. He will not be robbed of worship. Israel was to be a, a worshiping and witnessing people and, and, and how they were called to live in that economy of time. 
You and I today, as followers of Jesus, as disciples, are called to be, likewise, a worshiping and witnessing people. It's who we are. That's our purpose statement. Making disciples of Jesus Christ, that's our purpose. doesn't matter if you're in elementary school. doesn't matter if you're a teenager. doesn't matter if you're a college student, young adult. doesn't matter all the way up. That's our purpose. If we had business cards, that would be the tagline of every one of our business cards, whether you're a school teacher, a stay-at-home mom, whatever you're doing, retired, that's your purpose. It's all of our purposes. It's the same. That's what makes us one. Male or female, doesn't matter. That's our purpose, to be a disciple-making people, a worshiping people, a witnessing people for the glory of God in Israel, led by the priests. They completely sabotage that purpose. They live for anything and everything else. As we'll see in the charges in the next two weeks, they're going to live for pleasure. They're going to live for power. They'll find a purpose. All people will find a purpose. But the people of God are to live for one central purpose. The worship that is due the Lord. You see what it says? For, For from the rising of the sun, so all day, to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name. He's saying this is to all the nations outside the boundaries of Israel. We already saw it back in verse 5 as a reminder. He says, my judgment among the Edomites will be so great that you'll say outside the border of Israel, great is your name, Lord. And now he says it again. Incense will be offered. You don't worship me in a pleasing way, but I will be worshipped among all the peoples from the rising to the setting of sun. So for all time, he will be worshipped. He will not be robbed. And in all places, geographically, he will not be robbed chronologically or geographically. So flip over in your Bibles to Romans 12. Let's take time to look at this real quick. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. We're going to look at a similar statement of what's taken place. The priests have thought of themselves more highly than they ought. They thought they had the authority to change the values of the Lord. And they've drifted to a, a compromising purpose. They've confused the purpose that they're to have in their life. Their their conscience have become calloused. And therefore, they think of themselves more highly than they ought. Before we read Romans 12, 1 through 3, let me give you a reminder again here, back in verse 11 of our text in Malachi. It says, For for the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place, in every place, Among the nations, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations. You and I don't make sacrifices. We don't bring animals and sacrifice here. Christ was offered once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. But you and I as believers in Christ are called to live our lives as an offering to the Lord, as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Scripture gives us some insight about what that looks like. Let's look here at Romans 12. He says, Paul says to the church in Rome, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. So time out from the very beginning. That means as believers, we can never fall for the lie that if it doesn't hurt anybody, it's not wrong. Because guess what? None of us are our own. We are owned by the Lord. We are the Lord's. And our bodies, our lifestyle, our choices are to be sacrifices of worship to the Lord. Look at verse 2. So he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our mind, 
dwelling our mind on the things of the Word, putting off the old self and, and, and putting on the things of Christ by the Spirit. We put our mind, we renew our mind in the Word of God. So by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. So what is the will of God? It's this, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The things before the Lord, proper values. Now look at verse 3. Just as we saw the priests compromise their status and thinking of themselves more highly than they ought, look what he says in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment. That's our offering worship to the Lord. Now look back into Hebrews 13. I've got about a dozen references, but we're only going to look at this last one. Look at Hebrews 13. It's a little further back in your Bible. And you'll notice a trend. Almost every time that we read an Old Testament text, just like when we were in Psalm 119, there's somewhere that we can reference just about always in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is the greatest, the greatest sermons ever written. It's incredible. It's amazing. But look at Hebrews 13. We'll look at verse 14 through 16. We see another one of these pictures where we see Old Testament offering language, incense-type language, we see it used here for the believer after Jesus Christ laid his life down on the cross, defeated death, rose again, and ascended to heaven. We see the same language that you and I as believers in Christ ought to walk in. So Hebrews 13, 14 through 16, he says, For, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So the heavenly city, seated with Christ. Through him, verse 15, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, so what is it? It's the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. So that's not only talking, that's talking about here in corporate worship, but it's also talking about acknowledging His name before men, before the government, before people, before authorities and powers. We acknowledge His name as Lord, not Caesar. So verse 16, do not neglect to do good, and to share what you have. So, so what, is good, what does a good godly life look like? Pleasing sacrifices. Do not neglect to do good. See that in Ephesians 2.10, same idea. The good works the Lord's prepared before the foundation of the world for us to do. And to share what you have. For such sacrifices are what? They are pleasing to God. This, this gift of hospitality in the context of the local body. What a gift. Hospitality of our lives. Confused purpose. Listen, there will be no confusion of purpose in eternity, will there? You look forward to that day? Like always, when, when funerals take place, of course we look forward to the day will come when there will be no more death, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more goodbyes in that sense. But also in eternity, there will be no more confusion of purpose. Think about that for a moment. No more confusion of purpose. No more wondering, why am I even doing this task? Everything will be done with the right purpose to glorify God as clear as day. Every single one of us, every single person among the entire earth, the new heavens, new earth, living for the glory of God for eternity with right purpose. I don't know about you, but if you wrestle with purpose and meaning in your life, that is one of the sweetest reminders you can hear this morning. Evidence four. 
Evidence four. Conceited sacrifices, verses 12 through 14. Hard-hearted leaders serve dishonorably because they reject the Lord's authority, and it shows itself, fourthly, in conceited sacrifices. So self-focused sacrifices demanding what? Demanding that we be the Lord's exception to the rule. Demanding, I don't know how many of you are teachers. I won't ask you to identify yourself. But if you're a teacher, professor, we, we so value you. We appreciate you. But perhaps I ask that because if you're a teacher, you probably know what it's like to have a student come to you and ask to be the exception for the rule. The, the, the deadline came and it was late and they came to you and said, hey, here's what happened. And they give you a reason. They're asking to be the exception. And some reasons may be more weighty than others, but the priests, by their conceded sacrifices, reveal that they demand that they be the Lord's exception. We're going to make a big application on that in a moment. But look at 12 through 14. He says, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. So they ask, how have we polluted your altar? So, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, or how tiresome this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who is who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The priests, the leaders of Israel, were to lead the people to follow the leader of Israel, Yahweh, and instead they led them to follow themselves. They acted like, even though they were managers, they acted like they were owners. That's what happens in our life when we reject the Lord's authority. We will offer conceited sacrifices. The Spirit of God will put convictions of generosity or elements upon our heart and will say, nope, that was not on the table. Well, this is what we'll do in our lives, conceited sacrifices, and we'll find a reason for saying that's too extreme. What weariness this is. What weariness this is. God's call upon every one of our lives is to be and make disciples. That's your calling in your job. That's your calling in your neighborhood. That's your calling with your grandkids. That's your calling. That is your purpose in life, to abide in Christ and to make disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. We have different contexts and different neighborhoods, but that's our purpose. Your purpose is no different than mine ultimately in that way. And that will sound extreme. And so even in our culture, there's, there's people that we call extreme Christianity, extreme Christians, radical Christianity, when it really is the ordinary Christian life that God calls us to. It's following after Jesus to say, He is the owner of my life. All of my life is His. And I struggle with that. I try to rob Him constantly, but that's my purpose, to be and make disciples. That's our purpose. And what sounds radical is what the priests said. What they say to the Lord when the Lord said, this is really the standards? What'd they say? What, how, what weariness this is. This is too much. Way too much. Are you serious? Do this with that? This is exhausting. Because their hearts have already rebelled against the Lord. 
And it will lead them to argue that they're the exception to the rule. So too in our lives. Application, application. Where in your walk with the Lord, where in my walk with the Lord, do I pose to be an exception? So when I come to a text that I may or may not like, which ones am I quickly going to say, you know what, that doesn't apply for us right now? Now, there's right interpretation, but there's certain texts, particularly New Testament texts culturally, that make people look and say, oh, that, that doesn't apply to our place and time. That doesn't apply to me. There's right applications we want to make as students of Scripture. But in your walk with the Lord, is there, is there a place most particularly where you say, you know what, I, I am the exception to this rule? You wouldn't say it like that, but you know your heart does. This is a point of conviction, I think, for, of course, all of us. But it's our purpose in life to be a disciple-making people. And every church that compromises in our purpose, and it happens all across, just look around. Not like look around in our church right now, but look around the context of even our community. Look at the culture of so many churches. The temptation has been and will always be to want to look like the world in principle. Change the values, not, not talking methods, but principles and values and teachings of Scripture to compromise. And here's the lure with the hook on it. Here's the worm. The worm says if we look like the world in these values, the world will come to church. And if they come to church, then maybe they'll become Christians. And that is not true at all. And you look at every church, you look at every denomination that has done that, and they have died a slow or quick death. Because the sheep of God will leave and only a few goats will come in. You and I as followers of Jesus Christ can never compromise on the purposes the Lord has for us to be and follow Him in all of our lives. It is the greatest gift imaginable. Do you believe that? You and I, by God's grace, actually get to live by and for the ultimate purpose we were designed. We don't have to wonder, what's my purpose? It's as clear as day for us in Scripture. What a gift God has given you and I. What a gift God has given you and I. As He's given the believer on the other side of the world that has the same exact purpose as us, regardless of their background, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their language, the same exact purpose for why God made us to worship and witness the glory of God to a lost and broken world. What a privilege. Next steps. Next steps. I asked you from, from most likely to least likely, rank those four evidences. So if you have a pen, you can, you can write them in there. You can just put whatever your number is. could just be one, two, three, four. Whatever that is, what's the, what's the most likely, if your heart is becoming hardened against the Lord, that that evidence will be the first one to pop up? And my application for you, if you're part of a small group, share this with a small group. If you have a good friend or a spouse, somebody that you can share this with. Hey, I, I want you to know in my life, I think this is where this is probably going to, one of these two is probably going to be the first to show a hardening of my heart against the Lord. And ask them to hold you accountable there. And the second next step question is, as we talk about core values of what it looks like to follow after Jesus, word, worship, service, family, and we believe growing disciples ought to strive in, which of those four, if you were to rank those as far as strongest in my life, the weakest, how would you put those? Devoted to the Word? You say, that's number one, corporate worship, gospel-centered worship. You say, that's number one. 
sacrificial service in your life or, or building uh, family, or building community as a family, being renewed by the power of Christ's love? Would you say, family, would you say, I'm really known here and I know people really, really well here? Would you say, you know what, that's probably like my, my weakest right now. And what, what game plan would you put into place to orient that? So both sides of our next steps questions. If my heart hardens, where will it most show in my life personally first? And secondly, as I walk after the Lord, which of the values is strongest and maybe weakest in my life that I can put a game plan in and walk forward this week? Lord, would you give us soft hearts? Would you soften our hearts? Correct our heart problems, right? Would you stand with me as we sing and worship to the King, remembering Psalm 119.